Good evening. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and I'm glad you ventured out on this night to be with us. If your ride was like mine, it was treacherous. I ended up in somebody's front lawn right here in the neighborhood, a couple hundred yards from church, wondering, how in the world am I going to get out of this? I want to tell you about a man named Kennedy Brewer. This man is a man who has been on death row since 1992, truly a dead man walking, convicted of the brutal killing of a little three-year-old girl, first kidnapping and then murdering her, the young daughter of his then-girlfriend. But the Associated Press reports that everything dramatically changed on a Friday, just last month, the 15th of February. Truly was Good Friday for Kennedy Brewer and his family. You see, Kennedy Brewer had just found out in the last eight days a man had stepped forward and had confessed to this brutal crime. And so as Kennedy Brewer stood before Circuit Court Lee Howard, along with his family members there by his side, his mother Annie in the picture here, and members of the defense team, there were tears welling up and pouring out of the family's eyes as they heard the judge say, for the first time in 16 years, Kennedy Brewer, you are free man. Prosecutor stepped forward and apologized for this miscarriage of justice. And when queried after the trial about those 16 years and what it was like and how he felt about spending those 16 years on death row as an innocent man falsely accused And convicted, he said, I'm not worried about the past. I'm just thinking about the future. It had been 16 years, Brewer now, a man of 36. The first man freed post-conviction due to DNA testing in the state of Mississippi. The Innocence Project took him up as their own. First time ever. And when Lee... Howard, the circuit court, shared the ruling. Annie, Kennedy's mother, could be heard above all of it. Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus. And you and I can only imagine. We can only imagine what those 16 years were like. The fear, the discouragement, the despair the hopelessness of it all, the terror of of facing execution. And then we can only imagine the relief and the tears of joy and the wind of new life that swept into that Mississippi courtroom, resurrecting the lives of Kennedy Brewer and his family. We can only imagine it. As we have been following Jesus to the cross this Easter season. We realize tonight in a new way, Jesus was a dead man walking. He was falsely accused. He was abandoned by all those around him. The crowds that sang his praise just days before had turned on him and shouted for his head. The religious leaders, 
those who would shepherd and protect the people of God, they turned on him. They beat him. They mocked him. Handed him over to Pilate, who then hands him back to the religious leaders. He is abandoned by everyone. And in our text this evening, we realize even by God the Father himself. Abandoned by God so that you and I would never have to be abandoned by God. I encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Mark's Gospel, the 15th chapter, verse 21. You can find this scripture if you're using the Bible in the chair rack in front of you on page 721. And as you're turning to Mark 15, we remember that it's been Thursday night that Jesus was kept up all night through those bogus trials. He's been beaten. He's been flogged 39 times with the whip that had all the bone and the metal and and the stones that just tore open his back. All, All this has gone on. And now in verse 21, it's the early morning hours of Friday. And we read, a certain man from Cyrene, that would be North Africa, modern day Libya. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour, nine in the morning. When they crucified him, the written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And the Son of God face abandonment like you and I never will be so that you and I don't have to face the ultimate abandonment before God. When we read through a narrative story like this in the Bible, it's always good to 
Pay attention to little details. There's so much Mark could tell us about that day. There's so much that the other writers tell us about the Gospels that he doesn't tell us about. And so we pay special attention to things like Simon. No other Gospel writer tells us about Simon. We know that he's from Cyrene. He's an African man who, at first glance, seems like he's having a really bad day. I mean, he's truly caught, we'd think at first glance, in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's a pilgrim coming to celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem when all of a sudden he happens on an execution procession. And there before him falls Jesus, exhausted, unable to go on. The Roman soldiers look up and say, you, take his cross. That wasn't what he was planning on that day. He was planning to go take his lamb into the temple and have it sacrificed. He was planning on worshiping God, not carrying the cross of some man he knew nothing of. And he certainly wasn't pleased by being forced to do it by these Roman soldiers. We likely did not care too much for. But there he was, in the midst of his day, facing a divine interruption that would forever change his life as he had a divine introduction to the true Son of God, the Passover sacrifice. Why does Mark tell us about Simon? And, and what's the deal with saying that he's Alexander and Rufus's dad? Could it be? That Mark, who is writing to Christians in Rome, understood that they knew his sons, Alexander and Rufus. In fact, you turn to the very last chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In verse, 16 of cha- verse 13 of chapter 16, we read Paul saying, And greet Rufus, this one who is well chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been like a mother to me. I think what we can understand is the reason Mark puts it in his gospel is he understands that those who are going to read his gospel are going to know who these guys are. Alexander and Rufus, whose lives were never the same because of that day when their father carried the cross of Christ against his own will, carried the cross of Christ who, on the basis of his will, was going right there to the cross. And I say at the beginning of this dark passage, as we follow Christ to the cross, we see a glimmer of light. We see hope that that there's change and, and there's grace that's flowing out from Christ in the cross right from the very beginning. And then we notice that there's this other detail. Verse 33, it's a detail of darkness. We go, what's up with the darkness? It's not usually dark, is it, for three hours at 12 noon to three in the afternoon. Why was there darkness at high day when Jesus was crucified? Well, I, I think if you go back and remember the history of God's people, there also was darkness for three days right before the 10th plague, the angel 
of death that came and liberated God's people from Egypt. This is Passover. This is the feast that Jesus and all of God's people were there in Jerusalem to celebrate. And that first Passover was preceded by an act of God's judgment. That darkness that Moses says was so deep that you could feel it. You ever been in darkness like that? Lori and the kids were going through the Elroy Sparta Trail and through one of those tunnels. Some of you have been on it. You've been through those tunnels. So dark. There, you, there is no light at the end of the tunnel when you get in that thing. So dark you could feel it. And the darkness that's going on here is more than a motif. It is God's judgment being poured out. Poured out on whom? Poured out on Jesus. And so when Mark quotes Jesus' words on the cross, we know there's the seven last sayings of Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Woman, behold your son, as he talks to Mary and John about how John is to care for her. The words like, I thirst, or today you'll be with me in paradise to the thief, or it is finished, or Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Mark doesn't give us any of those. He gives us one utterance from Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was going on there? The judgment of God was being poured out on Christ. It's the very thing that the prophet said was going to happen. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Look at this verse. All of us have strayed away like sheep, the scriptures say. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, speaking of the coming Messiah, on Jesus, what did he lay on him? The guilt and sins of all of us. Have you ever thought about how many sins is that? For all the sins that ever happened, for all the sins that are going to happen, how many is that? You ever wonder how many people have ever lived up until this day? So I googled it. Amazing what you can find out. I don't know if this is precise or not. Somebody's done a lot of research on it. Said fifty billion people, fifty billion people. So then I thought, okay, if if we averaged, I mean, this would be a pretty good day, right? If we get it down to one sin a day, one sin a day, and we all live three score and ten, right? We all live seven years. That's 25,500 sins a day. You multiply that times 50 billion. And you know what my calculator did? It went E. It says, I don't do that math. So I did it again and it went 1, 2, 5, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. It's a lot of sins. 1,250,000,000,000 sins. If we just did it once for all those who've ever lived. All of those come crashing down on Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin. This is Jesus, the innocent son of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Here's why. So that in Christ, we might become 
the righteousness of God. And so the darkness is God's judgment pouring out on this earth, specifically on Christ. I know the women here didn't do this when you were kids, but I think of, guys, what we did with magnifying glasses. What did we do? We weren't just burning holes in leaves, probably, right? We were focusing the sun's energy and beams right on something, usually a little crawly thing, right? It's all focused down on Christ, the sins of the whole world. Let's make it more personal. Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I've ever thought, it was going off in in a direction, in a path, It wasn't God's. It wasn't loving him. It wasn't loving my neighbor. The motivations, the actions, the things I didn't do that I should have done, the things that I did that I shouldn't have done, all those things in my life and yours and all those who've lived and whoever will live come crashing down on Christ. And that's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it wasn't just something he was feeling. It was something very real. For from the very beginning of scriptures, we understand this about sin. Sin separates. It separates us from God. And it separates us from each other. And for the first time in his eternal existence, the son is separated from the father because he's become sin. And that sin has separated him. From the Father. That's why Jesus, the night before, is sweating as if it were drops of blood, not because of the physical anguish of the cross, but because of this moment and these hours when all the sins of humanity would come upon him and he would be separated from the Father, abandoned and separated from God, so that you and I would never have to be separated and abandoned. By God. Peter said, Jesus, the righteous one, was crucified for unrighteous people like you and me. He died for us, this righteous man, this perfect man, that he might bring you to God. That's what he did on the cross. And we say, well, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, there's another little detail in here. Detail of the curtain, verse 38. Jesus breathes his last. The other gospel writers say, one of the last things he says is, it is finished. It's the words for, it's paid in full. I've made full payment for the sins of humanity so that before God, they have been made right. The full payment has been paid. It is finished. And then it says in our text here, he breathes his last, and the minute Jesus dies, something happens in the temple. And we go, why is that in there? Matthew's talking about earthquakes and people rising from the dead. Mark has nothing about earthquakes and people rising from the dead. He goes right from why God, my God, why have you forsaken me to breathing his last to a temple curtain being torn from top to bottom. Supernatural. Not from bottom up. Way high up there, 35, 40 feet up. Right when he died. What's going on here? It's that Jesus' abandonment his separation from the Father, was so that we wouldn't have to be. And what happens there is God gives us a visual 
picture of Jesus gives us away. He gives us away into the very presence of God. That's what that curtain separated. The priests and all the people from the very presence of God, they went in at one time and only one man one time a year on the Day of Atonement. But now that curtain, which separated all of us from God, it's torn in two. And the writer Hebrews says this about the temple's curtain. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, he then says, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near. How can we do that? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Abandoned, separated from God, so that you and I wouldn't have to be. And then what happens when he dies? The professional executioner has this situation happen that's never happened to him before. He's seen how many? Hundreds? I don't know. He's seen a lot of them impaled on a Roman cross. And this is different. This is different. How this man treated those who were accusing him. How this man forgave those who crucified him. How this man dealt with his mother tenderly. How he dealt with the thief on the cross. All this was going on before the centurion. And when he breathed his last, he said, Surely this man is the Son of God. And Mark ends the account there to help us know that's the right conclusion as we follow Jesus to the cross. He is the Son of God. All kinds of lives are being changed in this story. Simon's life has changed. His sons through that changed. The thief on the cross from the other accounts changed. Earlier in Mark's account, Barabbas' life has changed. This man who is on death row, he is guilty. He deserves to be executed. But Jesus dies in his place and he's let go. He's free. What does he do with that? The Bible never tells us. But Jesus set him free, died in his place. The centurion's life has changed as he acknowledged this man as the son of God. It's not a common criminal. And your life can be changed. Can you imagine what it was like for Kennedy to hear Judge Howard say, you're a free man, you're a free man. Can you imagine what it'll be like for you to stand before God, the righteous judge, when you and I know we don't stand a chance? You can't make that grade. And hear God say, you put your faith in Christ, you really believe that he did it for you. You're a free man. And that freedom isn't something that we're waiting for. That's something that we have today. Do you have that freedom? Freedom from guilt, freedom from bad decisions, freedom from the consequences of all that stuff in your life, freedom from a body that's breaking down, relationships that are breaking down, freedom. And the scriptures say, when the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Holy God, what an awesome God you are.
You're not like us. We wouldn't do that with any of our kids. We wouldn't do what you did with your son, with the people who mean the most to us, let alone the people who are our enemies. What a great and loving God you are. And as we come to your table and remember again that Jesus was abandoned, he even suffered separation from you on the cross as he took on our sin and not only ours, but those of all humans who've ever lived and whoever will. We bless you. And we would say, like Annie Brewer, thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus. Lord, I pray as we go to the cross that you would continue to change lives. Change those lives here that need to be set free. Change those lives who've been set free to love you more. And Father, we pray all this in the strong name of your Son, our sin bearer, Jesus Christ. Amen.